continuing our study here in the book of Luke. Now, Luke 13 has been a uh, tough chapter. And it's been a tough chapter because not so much of it being difficult theologically to understand what Jesus is trying to say. It's the content of it and how heavy it is and how deep some of the stuff is. If you go back a couple weeks ago when we first started Luke 13, the first five verses really just spell out this point how we're all sinners. And what we did is we talked about how we're all sinners, how we're all bad, but bad's not a strong enough word. We're evil. We're awful. We had to set the scene on how low we were. We went to Romans 3 and talked about even though we were that low, God still loved us and died for us. Then it took us into verses 10 through 17, which we talked about last week, some of the woman. Verse 11, it says, And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. We said, that's a picture of us. Crippled in sin, there's nothing we can do. We can't raise ourselves up. There's nothing we can. Then what happened is... Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Even though we were crippled in sin, Jesus called out to us. Jesus touches us. Jesus sets us free from sin. We'd love to end it there, but we got this guy in verse 14 that had to throw a fit that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And then we talked about how there will always be people that dislike what we're doing and dislike what we're doing in the Lord. So with that introduction... It takes us to what we're going to talk about today, this idea of being part of the kingdom of God. Here's this crippled woman that's a picture of us in sin that has been made right and healed by Jesus. We've been healed right in Jesus, and now we're part of the family, the kingdom of God. So what's the kingdom of God like? Verse 18, then he said, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leaven. I tell you, I have heard so many different ideas and interpretations on this passage. So many different ideas. I've heard people come and look at verses 18 and 19. And they say, this is bad. Kingdom of God is a mustard seed. It grows into this beautiful, big, tall, bush-type tree. And what happens is these birds represent false teaching, and these false teaching has come into the church. I've heard people come and say, no, the mustard seed, this is good. The birds represent Gentiles coming in, and they're nested there. Then in the next one, in verses 20 and 21, people come in and say, well, leaven. Leaven in the Bible is always bad, so this is bad. This talks about false teaching, getting into the church. People say, no, leaven. Leaven is an expanding agent when it comes to cooking. And so it talks about the gospel message expanding. So many different ideas, so many different ways to look at it. So when there's difficult passages like this and we don't know how to handle it, what's the best thing to do? Skip it and just go right on. That's what we always do. No. Looking at these two passages, I think it's important in passages like this to stop and say, look at the full context of the chapter and look at what other verses say. Always remember that in studying the Bible. Look at the full context of the chapter and look at other passages that relate to that. So let's do this. First off, let's talk about this idea of mustard seed. Small seed, tiny seed. Cannot stress that to you enough how small the mustard seed is. And it can grow up to a bush-type tree about 10, 15 feet tall. Pretty impressive. So now it grows into this, and then these birds come and sit on it. Now, sometimes in the Bible, when you look at birds, they're looked at in a negative way. Sometimes when you look at birds, they're looked at in a positive way. I think it's important in this is to understand what the mustard seed represents and what the birds could represent. Well, the mustard seed's the kingdom of God. That's pretty self-explanatory. Jesus said that. The birds, though, 
My personal opinion, and I warn you and I stress to you, I say personal opinion. Take it or leave it. I believe it's backed up with Scripture, but take it or leave it. If you look in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4, there's a passage in Ezekiel which refers to Gentiles as birds. And refers to Gentiles coming in to the kingdom. So I look at verses 18 through 19, and I see the mustard seed representing the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, us. And that we are these birds that have come. And look what we've done in verse 19. We've nested in its branches. Now, I believe this is also backed up in the context of the chapter. Because in verses 24 through 30, which we're going to get to in a little bit, Jesus is trying to teach them, saying, listen... You're not in just because you're Jews. There's going to be other people that come in. So we are the birds to get a chance to come in. Now, you may say that's not really all that life-changing. Problem is, you're looking at yourself in a good light. You don't think you're that bad. You're a Gentile. From a biblical standpoint, you're a Gentile. You're dirty. You're unclean. You're disgusting. How could God love you? You're not Jewish. You're not God's chosen people. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal that God has opened the kingdom to allow us birds to come in, in verse 19, nest in the kingdom. It's grace. It's mercy. Now, what about the next one? Problem with the next one. Verse 21, when you look in the Bible, leaven is almost always representative as evil and sin in the Bible. In Mark 8, it said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, false teaching. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Galatians 5 says the same thing. Leaven is a picture of something small that's come in and it permeates and it destroys. Now, in baking, leaven is good because it expands. But in the Bible, leaven is looked at something small that's come in and then eventually takes over. I think this isn't a negative idea because look at verse 21. The woman is hiding it. She's hiding it. Now, when you look at leaven, this false teaching, my goodness, is it not overtaken the church? There is just all this idea of falseness. In a world today, it's so important that we as a church take a stand for what's right and what's true. There are certain standards and truth in the Bible, and God says there is a consequence to not following that truth. And what happens is there's all this false teaching that has creeped in, and as this false teaching creeps in, we start accepting little things, a little bit of leaven, and next thing you know, the leaven takes over. I just read a devotional the other day where it was talking about different statistics, and I believe it said 82% of Americans believe in heaven, And I believe it was 70% of Americans believe in hell. So I don't know about that 12% there for sure what they're thinking. And then of of the people that believed, or I should say of everybody, I believe it was over 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. Now, I'm not trying to get all something here, but if there's over 70% of the nation that is Christian, following Christian standards and morals, something is not going right. There's a breakdown in the system here. Leaven has crept in. And what happens is we start making little compromises. That's the way she dresses, so it's okay if I dress that way. That's the way he speaks, so it's okay if I speak that way. That's the way they act and live, it's okay if I act and live that way. Because the world now considers it acceptable. Jesus is trying to say here, once you make those little compromises, it eventually takes over everything. Sin is so destructive. So destructive. And a little tiny thing, boy, it can take over a lot. We had a situation this week that made me think about this. I got home Monday, and uh, it was late. It was probably about 8.30, 8.45, and we had to go out and feed the animals. Now, generally speaking, the boys like to go out and feed the animals. 
They didn't want to go out that night, so they said, Dad, can you go out and feed the animals? I said, sure. So I get out the dog food, the cat food, I go out. I go out our side door in the garage, and as soon as I go out the side door of the garage, right immediately to my left, there's our dog, Bella, and Bella has got a skunk cornered. And, and when I say immediately to my left, I, I'm literally saying like here and just like a foot or two away, immediately to my left. So I'm standing there, the skunk's standing there, Bella's standing there, and the skunk sprays. So I got hit. I got sprayed by the skunk. Why are you clapping? I don't know who clapped. I'm going to change the message to heathens, and I'm going to talk about hell. Um, so I got sprayed. So I stop what I'm doing. I go inside to get the gun. I walk in. Dawn goes, what's that smell? I said, that's me. She goes, why are you in the house? I said, I got to get the gun. There's a skunk. So I go out to get the skunk. And so the skunk sprayed me. I spray the skunk. And so as I spray the skunk, the skunk decides in its last act on this earth, it sprays one more time. Gets the side of the house. And it, I, I tell you, so it was awful. I had a good pair of shoes from Walmart. I lost those. And clothes. And it was just, it was awful. So we did our thing, took care of everything. So now a few days go by. And what happens is we kind of smelled it. You know, it hit the side of the house, and it was in one room that was pretty bad. So we treated the one room like as a hazmat. You know, we sealed it off, put blankets, no one go in the room. Well, what happened is it started to dissipate. So no big deal. Days are kind of going past now. Well, we had someone over at the house, and they went into that room. They opened that door, and they said, what's that smell? The skunk. See, what happened is... We got used to the smell. A little bit of leaven came in. And the urban house, we were all smelling like skunks, and it was perfectly fine with us because we had gotten used to it. So last night, I was out with a bucket and scrub brush trying to do what I could to get it off the side of the house. This is what happens spiritually. A couple compromises, a few watered-down truths, and you smell like a skunk. But you don't realize it because everybody else smells the same way. Now, it doesn't make us better as Christians. And see, this is what happens. And as Christians, we get this holier-than-thou mentality saying, I'm right, you're wrong. I have truth. Okay, well, I have truth. Well, it's my job then with the truth is to go show you the truth, teach you the truth, love you enough to tell you the truth. A great passage is Ephesians. It says, speak the truth in love. As we've said out here many times, I know many Christians that have truth, and they don't have love. And I don't want to talk to them. Because they're just beating everybody over the head. I know many Christians that have love, but they don't have truth. Yes, they love everybody. God loves everybody. And I completely agree with that. God loves everybody. But there is truth to what is morally considered right and wrong. And so what happens is churches and individuals have let a little leaven in. We've compromised on certain issues. And the next thing you know, the leaven spreads and takes over. And then whole groups have been knocked down by false teaching, which spreads. It is our responsibility as Christians to take a stand and make a stand for the truth in love. In love. Now, with that being said, then, that's the kingdom of God. After you hear these things, and you hear that teaching on leaven and truth and the world's falling apart... Well, it takes us right to verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Well, that's a legit question. When you start hearing these ideas about truth, you say, Lord, I mean, does anybody make the cut? You know, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize the 
infinite amount of grace and mercy God has. Oh my goodness, the, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize He just is love. I mean, the way God chose to describe Himself, God is love. And I love that. This grace and mercy. And you start realizing that there is never a hole or pit that is so deep and so big of sin that God can't pull you out of. But at the same time, too, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize how few people actually get that. I mean, how few of people actually get the truth. They get an understanding of the truth. They take a slice of the truth. As we like to say, they have buffet Christianity. They pick and choose what they want to believe. But how many actually get the full truth? See, Jesus is going to speak the truth. And as he's going to speak the truth here, as you see in verse 22, he is now going towards Jerusalem. If you remember correctly, a few chapters ago, it says that Jesus steadfastly set his heart to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is in full ministry mode. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins. That is his focus. And as you see here in the book of Luke, any time he gets a big crowd, he's just going to do a tough teaching. Anytime he gets a big following, he's going to start whittling them out. Because Christ is never in it for the numbers. Anytime you see a ministry or a church or a group of people, the only thing they care about is numbers, be afraid of that. What matters is truth. And Jesus is going to speak the truth. So what does he say here in verse 24? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Verse 25, and once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That's some tough passages there. That's some real tough passages. Go back up to uh, verse 24. Look at those words. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That word strive, one translation says work hard. Effort. Now please note, this is not work hard to get saved. Jesus took care of salvation for you. This is work hard to come to know your Savior. There's a huge difference there. You're not working hard to get saved. Jesus saved you. You're working hard to know your Savior and to know who He is. See, many seek, verse 24, they want it, but they're not able to. Now, why aren't they able to? You know, is God mean? He doesn't let them? I mean, is, is God sitting up there in heaven and there's somebody with a legitimate heart concern that wants to know Jesus and they're saying, I want salvation, I want heaven, I want free from this sin, I want this, and God says, no, no. no. See, it says they're not able. Why are they not able? They're not able because they're not willing to follow the guidelines that have been set up by the Lord. See, it's a narrow way. Now, why is it narrow? It's narrow because there's only one path. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. See, it's not narrow in the sense of I can't get in. It's narrow because there's literally one way to do it. People don't like being told there's one way. We are an American society. We conquered the West. Don't you dare tell me I can't climb that mountain. I'll climb it. it. says wet paint. I'll stick my own finger on that wet paint to see if it's wet paint. That's what we do. So when someone says there's one way to get to heaven, oh, there's only one way. I can find another way. No, it's a narrow gate. 
It's a narrow gate to get in there. And the problem is not many will be able to. It's not because they're not welcome. It's not because Jesus doesn't want them. It's because they're not willing to go in the way Christ has ordained. So this is important. Now jump to Matthew 7, please. Let's look at this. Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew 7, you see some similar passages here, but it builds up to a good point. Matthew 7, verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, keep that in the back of your mind. Once again, it's not difficult because God is keeping people from salvation. It's difficult because people don't want to go by the standards that God has set up. Go back to what we read in Luke 13, but stay here in Matthew 7. Just remember this. They said, did we not you know, eat in your presence? Did we not listen to your teachings? See, Lord, look at what we did. See, jump ahead now to Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, these people are basing their relationship with Christ on what they did. Lord, I heard you teach. Lord, I ate in your presence. Verse 22, prophesize demons, wonders. Lord, look at what I did. I obviously know you. See, here's the problem. In our English language, we use the word know. In the Greek, there's two different words for know. The one word for know is to know of somebody. You have a knowledge of them. There's many famous people in this world. I know them. If you show me a picture, I can point them out and say, that's them. I can even give you a few details about their life. I know know them. But the word right here for know in verse 23, this is a deep, personal, intimate knowledge. Jesus says, I know of you. I created you. I have infinite wisdom, but I don't know you. I don't know who you are because we don't have a relationship. And the problem is, why is the gate narrow? Why are few that find it? Because they're trying to get in on their own. And what were the merits they did? Lord, look at what we did. We heard you teach. We ate in your presence. We cast out demons. We prophesied. Now, what would we say in 21st century? Lord, I served in the back. I came to church. I was at Easter. I was at Christmas. I even read my Bible every now and then. Don't you remember me? Third Sunday, toddler room, that's me. I was back there. And, but the problem is Jesus knows you, but he doesn't know you. And that's why it's difficult. That's why it's narrow. Jesus is trying to tell the Jews here in Luke 13, listen, you're basing you being part of the kingdom of God. You're basing you being part of heaven and eternity on who you are and what you have done. And it doesn't work that way. You have to know me. Remember a few chapters ago, the Bible says that uh, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters came and wanted to talk to Christ. Jesus said, who are my brothers and sisters? He goes, those that do the will of the Father are my brothers and sisters. He wasn't interested in somebody who made a stake, a claim to him. He was interested in those doing his will. So now jump back to Luke 13. Let's bring this all together. Jesus is saying, just because... You know of me, and I know of you, doesn't mean there's a relationship. That is one of the biggest 
false teachings in the world today. Are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. Are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. When I was a kid, I did X, Y, and Z. All those things have merits. But you're a Christian because you chose to follow Christ. You're a Christian because you chose to accept what he did on the cross. You chose to go through the narrow gate and then live your life for him. See, the Jews were just resting on the idea of they were Jews. It doesn't cut it. Look at verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. He's telling the Jews, he says, listen, you guys are in for a rude awakening here, because when people come, verse 29 and 30, the people that you've rejected, the birds sitting in the mustard seed tree, your eyes will be opened, and then you'll realize it's too late. You're not in just because of who you are. You're in because you know me. And I tell you, I look at verse 30. There are going to be some who we have deemed last on this earth. And God says, no, they're mine. There's going to be some on this earth that we have deemed first. Oh, they have to be in. Look at them. And God's going to say, I never knew you. So I was thinking about this. Who's a good example in the Bible of somebody who had been last that is first? And there's so many. I picked one out of the Old Testament, and as I picked them, my mind just started wandering to all these other ones. We're just going to look at one guy here. Can you go with me to Genesis 19? Genesis 19. Let's look at one guy that when you would analyze his life, you would say he's last. This is a guy that's not getting in. This is a guy that does not deserve to get in. But we'll get to that in a second. Because this is what we do. We look good. We sound good. But we smell like a skunk. We look good, we sound good, but we really don't know the Lord. But then there's some that we look at and say, they're the outcasts of society. And Jesus said, yeah, but they're mine. See, now a little bit of background here to Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And what happened was, Abraham and Lot were traveling with each other, and they had a very large entourage, if you will. A lot of livestock, a lot of servants, a lot of everything. And they didn't have enough food or water to meet everybody's needs. So Abraham goes to Lot, and he says, hey, we got to split. So I'll let you choose where you want to go, and I'll just go the other way. So Lot looks around, and he looks towards Sodom. And he sees Sodom, and the Bible says Sodom reminded him of Egypt. So Lot chose Sodom. Now, it's not good to be reminded of Egypt. In the Bible, Egypt represents the world, the world system, the, everything the world has to offer. And so when Lot looked towards Egypt, he was looking towards the world that's not good. As we said earlier, I don't want to dress like the world. I don't want to speak like the world. I don't want to live like the world. I don't want to be the world. I'm called to a different standard. So, Lot chose Sodom. Well, as the Bible progresses, the Bible says first off that Lot lived near Sodom. Then in the next chapter, it says that Lot lived in Sodom. And then it eventually gets to the point here in Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, Old Testament, whoever sat in the gate was a position of authority, was a position of respect. So Lot went from being near Sodom to being in Sodom to now he's one of the leadership of Sodom. That's not good. So, they're coming to rescue Lot. Sodom's going to be destroyed. So they come to rescue Lot, and they basically say, Here, we're here, sent by the Lord. What do you need to do? So as they come to Lot's house... What happened is the men of Sodom want these other men. Verse 4, Now before they laid down, the men of Sodom 
The men of the, excuse, excuse me, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them carnally. So the men of Sodom now surrounded the house. These two angels are there said, Send them out. We want them. We want them carnally. Now Lot, what does he do? Shuts the door, verse 6. Verse 7 says, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Then Lot's great ideas in verse 8 saying, Hey, I have two virgin daughters. I'll send you out, them. Do whatever you want with my virgin daughters. Don't touch the men. That's weak. That's a weak man. That's a weak man that's not willing to stand up to this sin that's encroaching his house. His great idea is, I'll keep the angelic being safe by giving them my two virgin daughters, and I will throw them out to a crowd of men and say, do what you want to with them. That's Lot. Well, it goes on. The angels basically say, Lot, we got to do something here. Verse 10, the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then in verse 11, the angels strike the men with blindness. Lot was going to get himself killed. The angels have to save him, verse 10. Verse 11, the angels have to strike them with blindness. Please note in blindness here in verse 11. It says, And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. They're struck with blindness, and the men of Sodom still don't stop trying to feed the flesh. I tell you, if I got struck with blindness, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably stop whatever I was doing, sit down, and cry. They just had their flesh. They're still groping at this door. So the angels save Lot. So what the angels do in verse 12, they say, Lot, do you have anybody in the town here? Go get them. Go find them. We're going to destroy this town. You have to save your loved ones. Verse 14, Lot went and spoke to his son-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy it. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. Lot was a weak man. Lot also had no witness. No one listened to him. No, no one's listening to Lot. He has no respect. He's lingering. There's problems going on here. So what happens? Verse 15, the angels say, we need to leave. What does Lot do? Verse 16, and while he lingered, the men took a hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out of the city. Lot was lingering. Destruction's coming. Lot is not moving. He's in leadership in a town he shouldn't even be in. He's a weak man that can't stand up for the truth. He doesn't have a witness. He's lingering in destruction. And finally they say, okay, Lot, get out. Go to the mountains. Lot says, I don't want to go to the mountains. There's this other city. Let me go to the city. The angels say, fine, go to the city. Lot then says, I don't want to go to the city now. Can I go to the mountains? This is Lot. So they finally said, go to the mountains. So now he's in this cave with his two daughters. Now, we don't know for sure what was going through their head, but maybe they thought the entire world was destroyed. Can't imagine seeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then his two daughters say this. There's no other men around. only option we have is let's get Dad drunk and let's go sleep with Dad and have an ancestral relationship with them so that way we can have some children. So let's put Lot here, just at Genesis 19. He's leadership in a town he shouldn't even be in. He's a weak man that won't stand up. He lingers when he should be running. He has no witness to anybody else. And the chapter ends with him being drunk, having an ancestral relationship with his daughters. That's Lot. But 2 Peter says that Lot was what? Righteous. Lot was just. Now, I look at Genesis 19, and I do not see a righteous man in Genesis 19 in any way whatsoever. 
I do not see a justified man in Genesis 19 in any way whatsoever. If I'm picking last into first, and I'm picking teams for heaven, Lot is the last one chosen. But God says he's in. Now, how can he be in? Grace, mercy, love. See, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, and I encourage you to study it out for extra credit later on. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says that Lot's soul was tormented by sin. Yes, there are a lot of decisions in Genesis 19 that he should have done differently. A ton of them. But in his heart, he was tormented by the sin and by the choices. And obviously he had a heart for the Lord. We have to be careful as Christians. Sometimes we are so quick to judge and to examine someone's heart and say, they're out. Why are they out? Just look at them. They're out. Well, they're in. How do they're in? Well, just look at them. They're in. Jesus makes it pretty clear in Matthew 7 and Luke 13. You can't look at the outside. He knows the heart. And I'm very thankful that sometimes those that are last get to be first. Because we may not have done everything that Lot did in Genesis 19, but if there were certain chapters of your life made public for everyone to read, I think you'd be just as embarrassed. I know I would. If there were certain chapters of my life, certain conversations, certain thoughts, certain actions that were displayed for everyone to see, no one would think I would be in. It's through the grace of Jesus Christ that we are. Now let's go back to Luke 13. Let's finish this up real quick. As we're talking about speaking the truth, and there's consequences to speaking the truth. As we mentioned Wednesday, we're going through Jeremiah 26. There's two prophets mentioned in our study Wednesday. One was Micah, one was Uriah. Real quick, Micah was a prophet, and he preached to Hezekiah the king. Hezekiah listened, repented, relented, and was blessed. Uriah preached to the king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim put him to death. Point is, when you speak the truth, there's going to be consequences. If you go into work today, if you go back to your house, you go back to your school, and you say, Lord, I'm going to take a moral stand on issues, I'm going to speak the truth in love, through the Spirit, be prepared to be hated. You are in the minority when it comes to certain beliefs. Be prepared to not be accepted. So what I see here in verse 31, on that very same day, Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now stop here for a second. I've sometimes changed my mind on verse 31. Right now, this is what I think on verse 31. I don't think the Pharisees really cared about Jesus. I think the Pharisees saw Jesus as an issue, as a problem, and they said, hey, we can't kill him. Let's scare him. Herod wants to kill you. Just leave. Jesus, this is a great opportunity. Just get out of here. Go to some other country. Preach your message at that other country. We'll take care of Herod ourselves. See, that's what people do. When you speak the truth, they're like, hey, just tone it down a little bit. I mean, you've got to work with these people. You've got to live with these people. Everybody's got a different idea. Everything is relative to this own standard of morals. When you speak the truth, people aren't going to like it. Jesus' response, verse 32, and he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow on the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. That phrase, today, tomorrow, on the third day, it's not a literal today, tomorrow, on the third day. It's a saying they used back then. Where Jesus says, my future plans are this. What he's saying is, you go tell Herod, my ministry right now is to minister to people. And that's what I'm doing, verse 32. And then my ministry, verse 33, is to go die. That's what I'm doing. I'm not going to allow someone's threats to dictate what I do. As we mentioned last week, do not allow anybody's opinion 
dictate your joy in the Lord or your ministry to what you're called. Too often as Christians, we completely wilt in opposition. We're strong. And then we go into work and we're strong until someone disagrees with us. And I should probably just keep my mouth shut, get to four o'clock and go home. No. Sometimes we have to take a stand. And as we take a stand, there's going to be opposition to that. But we speak the truth. And as we speak the truth, we are prepared that people are not going to accept it, not going to like it. And I do not let those people steal my joy. And number two, I don't become bitter and angry towards those people. Because it takes us to our last passage here, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you children together as a hen, gather some brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, and surely I say to you, you should not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, verses 34 and 35, Jesus is saying, I still care. Jerusalem is going to eventually kill me, but I just love him. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but I still love them. See, what happens as Christians, we make a stand for the truth, they reject it, and then I feel like I have a green light to be angry then. Fine, be that way. You choose hell, choose hell. Fine, be that way. You want to live in moral depravity, live in moral depravity. I don't care, go out and do whatever you want. I've already spoken the truth to you. See, Jesus says, no, wait a second, my heart still breaks for these people. My heart breaks for them because I love them goes back to our passage in Ephesians. Speak the truth in love. Don't compromise on truth, but make sure everything you say is spirit-led and done in love. Don't forget that. And don't go so far the other way that in love, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It's never my intention to hurt anybody's feelings, but sometimes it's our intention to say the truth does hurt. And we are responsible to speaking that truth in what we say and what we do. Jesus is the example of that. That when it comes to the kingdom of God, we have a responsibility to speak that truth, show that truth, and have that love, that truth. And that's what we want to do, is stand for truth. Jesus said, I am truth. He said, the word of God is truth. And he said, the Holy Spirit is truth. Follow those three things, and you'll be standing right in the eyes of God. Because those are the truth. In a world that is confused and out of whack, we need truth more than ever to show us the path and direction. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. Just want to remind you of...